This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So here are a handful of poems from Ted Hughes' first two books, The Hawk in the Rain, which came out in 1957, and Looper Call, which came out in 1960. This will give a sense of how he got to the poetry of his that I've been reading lately, and the ones that I most admire uh, that I've already posted here, such as uh, the, the poems from Crow from 1970, Season Songs from 1976, The Remains of Elmet and Moortown Diary from 1979, and finally River from 1983. And these uh, seven or so or more poems give a hint as to how he got there. You can still hear him trying to be more, uh, you might say, formal in some of these and in others, just a bit of a, uh, a mouthful, uh, learning to use uh, the natural music that he has with words. And in others, he just sounds as he, as he did, as if he emerged mature almost immediately. There are also two other poems that come from these books, uh, Six Young Men and an uncollected poem from the same time called My Uncle's Wound, that I recorded earlier, and I will just attach those, attach that reading to the end of this episode so that uh, all of these contemporaneous poems are together. So first, the title poem and the first poem from his first collection, The Hawk in the Rain. It says, I drown in the drumming plowland. I drag up heel after heel from the swallowing of the earth's mouth from clay that clutches my each step to the ankle, with the habit of the dogged grave. But the hawk, effortlessly at height, hangs his still eye. His wings hold all creation in a weightless quiet, steady as a hallucination in the streaming air. While banging wind kills these stubborn hedges, thumbs my eyes, throws my breath, tackles my heart, and rain hacks my head to the bone. The hawk hangs, the diamond point of will that pull stars the sea drowner's endurance. And I, bloodily grabbed, dazed, last moment counting morsel of the earth's mouth, strain to enter the master fulcrum of violence, where the hawk hangs still. That maybe in his own time meets the weather 
coming the wrong way, suffers the air, hurled upside down, fall from his eye, the ponderous shires crash on him, the horizon trap him, the round angelic eye smashed, mix his heart's blood with the mire of the land. And the next poem is called The Horses. I climbed through woods in the hour before dawn dark. Evil air, a frost-making stillness. Not a leaf, not a bird. A world cast in frost. I came out above the wood where my breath left torturous statues and the iron light. But the valleys were draining the darkness till the mooring, blackening dregs of the brightening gray, halved the sky ahead, and I saw the horses, huge in the dense gray, ten together, megalith still. They breathed, making no move, with draped manes and tilted hind hooves, making no sound. I passed. Not one snorted or jerked its head. Gray, silent fragments of a gray, silent world. I listened in the emptiness on the moor ridge. The curlew's tear turned its edge on the silence. Slowly detail leafed up from the darkness. The sun orange, red, red erupted silently and splitting to its core and flung cloud, shook the gulf open, showed blue, and the big planets hanging. I turned, stumbling in the fever of a dream, down towards the dark woods, from the kindling tops, and came to the horses. There, still they stood, but now, steaming and glistening under the flow of light, their draped stone manes their tilted hind hooves stirring under a thaw, while all around them the frost showed its fires. But still they made no sound, not one snorted or stamped, their hung heads patient as the horizons, high over valleys and the red leveling rays. In a din of crowded streets, going among the years, the faces, May I still meet my memory in so lonely a place, between the streams and red clouds, hearing the curlews, hearing the horizons endure. And this is a poem called Wind. This house has been far out at sea all night, the woods crashing through darkness, the booming hills, winds stampeding the fields under the window, floundering black astride and blinding wet, till day rose. Then, under an orange sky, the hills had new places, and wind wielded blade light, luminous black and emerald, flexing like the lens of a mad eye. At noon I scaled along the house side, as far as the coal house door. Once I looked up, through the brunt wind that dented the balls of my eyes, 
The tent of the hills drummed and strained its guy rope. The fields quivering, the skyline a grimace. At any second to bang and vanish with a flap. The wind flung a magpie away, and a black back gull bent like an iron bar, slowly. The house rang like some fine green goblet in the note that any second would shatter it. Now, deep in chairs, in front of the great fire, we grip our hearts and cannot entertain book, thought, or each other. We watch the fire blazing and feel the roots of the house move, but sit on, seeing the window tremble to come in, hearing the stones cry out under the horizons. And this is a poem called Invitation to the Dance, especially for me. This conjures up the brutal physical violence of uh, the Crow poems. This is Invitation to the Dance. The condemned prisoner stirred, but could not stir. Cold had shackled the blood prints of the knout. The light of his death's dawn put the dark out. He lay, his lips numb to the frozen floor. He dreamed some other prisoner was dragged out. Nightmare of command in the dawn, and a shot. The bestial gaoler's boot was at his ear. Upon his sinews torturers had grown strong, the inquisitor old against a tongue that could not, being torn out, plead even for death. All bones were shattered, the whole body unstrung. Horses, plunging apart towards north and south, tore his heart up by the shrieking root. He was flung to the blowfly and the dog's fang pitched onto his mouth in a black ditch. All spring he heard the lovers rustle and sigh. The sun stank. Rats worked at him secretly. Rot and maggot stripped him stitch by stitch. Yet still this dream engaged his vanity, that could he get upright, he would dance and cry, shame, on every shy or idle wretch. And the last poem I would have read from The Hawk in the Rain is Six Young Men, and that is the one that I will append to the end of this episode, since I read it earlier. I'm reminded of Seamus Heaney saying in the interviews that I was reading a while back that uh, because he first read Ted Hughes in The Hawk in the Rain and Looper Call, and because that was such an intense experience of his young life, coming upon such powerful poetry, and coming upon it uh, not from someone long dead, but from someone not much older than him, and who came from, or at least had an awareness of, the kind of rural life that Heaney had in Ireland, and was having it himself in England. Um, I remember him saying that, uh, and this is a good example of how art 
isn't just about aesthetic judgment. It is somehow about when you read it, how intense the memory is, and all the rest of it. Uh, Heaney said that even though he admired and even saw that uh, Ted Hughes's later poetry was probably better than these first two collections, because of the way and the time and the circumstances in which he first read this at the start of his own writing, start of his own poetry, he was most attached to this early sound of Ted Hughes. And I can see why. Um, here now are, let's see, one, two, four poems from his 1960 book, Looper Call. The first one is May Day in Holderness. It says, this evening, motherly summer moves in the pond. I look down into the decomposition of leaves, the furnace door whirling with larva. From Hull's sunset smudge, Humber is melting eastward, my south skyline. A loaded single vein, it drains the effort of the inert north, Sheffield's oars, bog pools, drags of toadstools, tributary graves, dunghills, kitchens, hospitals. The unkillable North Sea swallows it all. Insects, drunken, drop out of the air. Birth soils, the sea salts, scoured me, cortex and intestine, to receive these remains. As the incinerator, as the sun, as the spider, I had a whole world in my hands. Flower-like, I loved nothing. Dead and unborn are in God comfortable. What a length of gut is growing and breathing, this mute eater biting through the mind's nursery floor with eel and hyena and vulture, with creepy crawly and the root with the sea worm entering its birthright. The stars make pietas. The owl announces its sanity. The crow sleeps glutted, and the stoat begins. There are eye-guarded eggs in these hedgerows, hot hay nests under the roots in burrows. Couples at their pursuits are laughing in the lanes. The North Sea lies soundless. Beneath it smolder the wars, the heartbeats bomb bayonet. Mother, mother, cries the pierced helmet. Cordite oozings of Gallipoli, curded to the beastings, broached my palate. The expressionless gaze of the leopard, the coils of the sleeping anaconda, the night-long frenzy of shrews. I just wonder, uh, knowing that T.S. Eliot was the editor at Faber and Faber back then, what he made of Ted Hughes. Um, if he found, if he saw in him someone who even surpassed himself. <laughs> uh, I think T.S. Eliot's letters by now are up to volume nine, and it's only in the early 40s, so we might have to wait a while to find out. This next poem is called View of a Pig, and that also reminds me, actually, that uh, 
For those of you out there who don't have any of Ted Hughes' poetry and who only come across the 1,200-page collected poetry, um, most of these poems are about animals and about nature, and I see that uh, there is a smaller book, about 200 pages, that is just called A Ted Hughes Bestiary that uh, is probably worth looking at. I'd like to get a copy of it myself and just see what all of his animal and nature poems sound like put together. This is called View of a Pig. The pig lay on a barrow, dead. It weighed, they said, as much as three men. Its eyes closed, pink-white eyelashes. Its trotters stuck straight out. Such weight and thick pink bulk, set in death, seemed not just dead. It was less than lifeless, further off. It was like a sack of wheat. I thumped it without feeling remorse. One feels guilty insulting the dead, walking on graves, but this pig did not seem able to accuse. It was too dead, just so much a poundage of lard and pork. Its last dignity had entirely gone. It was not a figure of fun. Too dead now to pity, to remember its life, din, stronghold of earthly pleasure as it had been, seemed a false effort and off the point. Too deadly factual. Its weight oppressed me. How could it be moved? And the trouble of cutting it up. The gash in its throat was shocking, but not pathetic. Once I ran at a fair in the noise to catch a greased piglet that was faster and nimbler than a cat. Its squeal was the rending of metal. Pigs must have hot blood. They feel like ovens. Their bite is worse than a horse's. They chop a half-moon clean out. They eat cinders, dead cats. Distinctions and admirations, such as this one, was long finished with. I stared at it a long time. They were going to scald it, scald it and scour it, scour it like a doorstep. And this is part one of a poem called An Otter. And it says this, Underwater eyes, an eel's oil of water body, Neither fish nor beast is the otter, four-legged yet water-gifted, to outfish fish, with webbed feet and long ruddering tail, and a round head like an old tomcat. Brings the legend of himself from before wars or burials, in spite of hounds and vermin poles, does not take root like the badger, wanders, cries, gallops along land he no longer belongs to, re-enters the water by melting, of neither water nor land, seeking some world lost when first he dived, that he cannot come at since, takes his changed body into the holes of lakes, as if blind, cleaves the stream's push 
till he licks the pebbles of the source. From sea to sea crosses in three nights like a king in hiding, crying to the old shape of the starlit land, over sunken farms where the bats go round without answer, till light and birdsong come, walloping up roads with the milk wagon. And the last poem here from Lupercal. This is called November. The month of the drowned dog. After long rain, the land was sodden as the bed of an ancient lake, treed with iron and birdless. In the sunk lane, the ditch, a seep silent all summer, made brown foam with a big voice. That and my boots on the lane's scrubbed stones in the gullied leaves against the hill's hanging silence. Mist silvering the droplets and the bare thorns, slower than the change of daylight. In a let of the ditch, a tramp was bundled to sleep, face tucked down into beard, drawn in under his hair like a hedgehog's. I took him for dead, but his stillness separated from the death of the rotting grass in the ground. A wind chilled, and a fresh comfort tightened through him, each hand stuffed deeper into the other's sleeve. His ankles, bound with sacking and hairy band, rubbed each other, resettling. The wind hardened. A puff shook a glittering from the thorns. And again the rain's dragging gray columns smudged the farms. In a moment the fields were jumping and smoking. The thorns quivered, riddled with the glassy verticals. I stayed on, under the welding cold, watching the tramp's face glisten and the drops on his coat flash and darken. I thought, what strong trust slept in him, as the trickling furrows slept, and the thorn roots and their grip on darkness, and the buried stones taking the weight of winter, the hill where the hard, where the hare crouched with clenched teeth. Rain plastered the land till it was shining like hammered lead, and I ran, and in the rushing wood shuddered by a black oak leaned. The keeper's gibbet had owls and hawks by the neck, weasels, a gang of cats, crows, some stiff, weightless, twirled like dry bark bits in the drilling rain. Some still had their shape, had their pride with it, hung chins on chests, patient to outweigh these worst days that beat their crowns bare and dripped from their feet. Since I will be getting back into reading the poetry of Ted Hughes here, I thought a good way to do that would be with two poems about war from early in his career. 
From his first book comes this poem, Six Young Men. The celluloid of a photograph holds them well. Six young men, familiar to their friends. Four decades that have faded and ochre tinged this photograph have not wrinkled the faces or the hands. Though their cocked hats are not now fashionable, their shoes shine. One imparts an intimate smile. One chews a grass. One lowers his eyes, bashful. One is ridiculous with cocky pride. Six months after this picture, they were all dead. All are trimmed for a Sunday jaunt. I know that bill-buried bank, that thick tree, that black wall, which are there yet and not changed. From where these sit, you hear the water of seven streams fall to the roar in the bottom, and through all the leafy valley a rumoring of air go. Pictured here, their expressions listen yet, and still that valley has not changed its sound, though their faces are four decades under the ground. This one was shot in an attack and lay calling in the wire, then this one, his best friend, went out to bring him in and was shot too. And this one, the very moment he was warned from potting at tin cans in no man's land, fell back dead with his rifle sights shot away. The rest, nobody knows what they came to, but come to the worst they must have done, and held it closer than their hope. All were killed. Here, see a man's photograph, the locket of a smile, turned overnight into the hospital of his mangled last agony and hours. See bundled in it his mightier-than-a-man-dead bulk and weight. And on this one place which keeps him alive, in his Sunday best, see fall war's worst thinkable flash and rending, unto his smile forty years rotting into soil. That man's not more alive whom you confront and shake by the hand, see hail, hear, speak loud, than any of these six celluloid smiles are, nor prehistoric or fabulous beast more dead, no thought so vivid as their smoking blood. To regard this photograph might well dement such contradictory permanent horrors here smile from the single exposure and shoulder out one's own body from its instant and heat. And the second poem was not collected into a book at all during Hughes's lifetime, but was published on its own uh, in a magazine. This is called My Uncle's Wound. Not much remains of my uncle's Normandy. The stones, but he'd signed none. The grass is in its fortieth generation, and the skylines have moved subtly, pampered curves of a slut risen in the world. Under the March washing wind, new wheat tugged and glistened. 
We walked up a lane he had last marched up sick, with the black stench of dead men and the beckoning of shell-burst and mile-off machine-gun. He monologued the march he had come, sleepwalking in the khaki familiar column, singing, but inwardly one silent eye, seeing for the first time the crazed eyes of men, once blown to pieces, then reassembled hurriedly and healed with a cigarette. The river of stretchers, bandages, crutches, and blood, oozing down from the trembling ridges where the twentieth century broke surface, and the machine guns transformed mathematics. I was squeezing myself into the ditches, reading my final moment off grass blades or the untroubled procedure of beetles, or else floating gingerly at head height, my neck bare to the chill of an express track along which the vistas exchanged lightnings. The fields, as they changed, were still finding dead men, richer, dark patches in the pale watercolor wheat. I scavenged for a memory, crumbs of rust or of bone, and one dead man's shadow of fertility. But I found nothing, and maybe they weren't dead men. And when I looked at my uncle, to see in a glass the landscape as it had been, he had turned to a wandering bit of a dream. It was a cold-eyed country, up and earning daily bread in a thoroughly wakened world. He seemed certain only of the low wood bristling the ridge, and the first mist of bud, towards which we were walking and towards which long ago he had started to run, sketchily with some tentative others, when a bullet picked him up by the hip bone and laid him in a shell hole. The sun, all the remainder of a day, stared down into his wound. The war had gone away and left him alone with a deliberate sniper, who now signed his brow with blood. And, as that shrank him flat below the crater wall, bullet by bullet dug down after him and signed him again. I wanted the exact spot, the earth scar of that hole, through which he bloodily crept into wealth and fatness. I would have put in my wallet one of the green-flagged thread-root wheat grains of his resurrection. He'd lost touch. It was all somewhere down there, somewhere or other in time, somewhere in him. As the world's mass kept those skylines so quiet, he became quiet with his memories. But I know memory as I know the blood-crammed, dried-out, rabbit-colored crumbs of soil that thicken this earth, or the blinding of the sun, or the green wheat blades sucking the crumbled soil into their glistenings. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, 
You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.